0: Today on Truth in Politics and Culture, a quick report on the South Carolina legislature, more analysis of the bipartisan border bill, radical environmentalists continue to expand the list of items you can't have, Iran moves within one week of having a nuclear weapon, and a medical journal removes studies showing the possible dangers of chemical abortions ahead of the Supreme Court's scheduled arguments concerning its safety. This is Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. Good morning, everybody. Welcome in to YouTube and Facebook Live here this morning. We're glad to have you as part of the program, Truth and Politics and Culture. This is Tony Beam, and I serve at North Greenville University where Christ makes the difference and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and for society. You might say we're getting them cranked up to uh, take on the world and uh, to become Just solid, firm believers in the world having their influence in the culture, which is pretty desperately needed. I also serve as the policy consultant for the South Carolina Baptist Convention. Uh, Some of you may be looking and saying, wow, are you dressed for work today? No, um, I'm dressed in anticipation of baseball season returning. I saw yesterday that we're nine or ten days away from pitchers and catchers showing up For spring training or getting ready to uh, start the baseball season. And yeah, I know we still got the Super Bowl to go this Sunday, but uh, be honest with you, I just, I I love football, but I'm not all that jazzed about the Super Bowl. I mean, desperately, uh, I'm a desperately disappointed Cowboys fan. And uh, it looks like that's going to be my lot for years to come. I mean, you know, it's like we go back to peanuts, right? And I'm not talking about the kind that Come, come in the little packs that you can get at a convenience store. I'm, I'm talking about the cartoon, right, with Lucy and Charlie Brown. And Cowboys fans and Gamecock fans, which I happen to be one of each, um, you, you know, they, they tend to be in the Lucy-Charlie Brown syndrome mode most of the time. Every time we step up to kick the ball and we think it's going to be a big deal, uh, Lucy pulls the ball out of the way. And uh, so there you are. And where that—that's kind of where we are as sports fans, but anyway, um, the Braves. Hopefully, you know we have we we have seen the Braves kick it through the uprights. That's kind of a mixed metaphor, isn't it? Baseball and football. Anyway, we've seen the Braves win a World Series recently, and uh, they're you know looks like they've uh, strengthened their bullpen, uh, working on their starting pitching as well, and so hopefully when the season starts, we're going to see a. Um, An Atlanta Braves team that's not going to just march through the regular season, breaking records, and then lose in the first round of of the series. Um, Hopefully, we're going to see the Atlanta Braves go through with a great season, but uh, I'd I'd give up some losses. I mean, I'd I'd trade some some losses for wins if it still means we're in the mix at the end and we make it to the World Series. And I think and, and we win. I mean I, obviously that's the goal. It's not just to have a, an amazing or stellar regular season in baseball. So I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, I'm also there's this ray of light with the South Carolina Gamecocks men's basketball team. The, the women have been stellar, continue to be stellar. But the South Carolina men's team has beaten two top ten, ten teams and are now ranked. I meant to check. You know what? It's terrible. I didn't even look to see what uh, the, the, where the Gamecocks are ranked. But I, I knew they would have to be this week because they beat Kentucky and Tennessee. And so uh, good things happen in Columbia. I mean, these guys, the, the Gamecocks are, are believers right now. The men's team believe they can beat anybody. And we'll see if they can beat Mississippi tonight. I think they play tonight, seven thirty, something like that. Um, all right, let's let's get into. I know people go nuts when I talk about sports um, because they this is supposed to be a Christian worldview political um, program that talks about what's going on from a, a biblical perspective. So let so let's get into some of the news. South Carolina legislature did some good stuff last week. They were. Um, able, The House was able to get the bill the, uh, which was uh, would protect minors from being able to view pornography on the Internet. It's made it over to the Senate. It's been assigned a committee in the Senate. And same thing for the Internet bill that would protect minors from just being able to go out and set up social media accounts without parental permission. That bill is also over in the Senate. And uh, so this week, the House is going to take up some bills that I'm hopeful will fail, and I'm just going to quickly uh, talk about them because uh, I'm the dinosaur in the room when it comes to things like alcohol and marijuana, and, and I mean, I get it, um, but I just think that we're better off as a culture in South Carolina when we don't have a significant portion of our population either driving around, walking around, or trying to go to work or do anything while they're high or drunk. And apparently, we we think we need more access to alcohol in South Carolina. Even though we're seventh in the country when it comes to DUIs, pretty consistently, we're fairly consistent in the top ten for domestic abuse, which just about any study you want to look at pegs domestic abuse to alcohol um, abuse with men. I mean, typically, um, it's the old story. When a guy gets drunk— um, Something bad goes on at work. Something bad goes on in some other part of his life. Uh, maybe he's, uh, you know, a Cowboys fan, and he gets frustrated. I'm, I'm kidding. It's more serious than that. But I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that that what then a few drinks, um, you get inebriated, and you decide you can go home and punch out your spouse. And South Carolina has a problem with that. So with the way we're reacting right now – Is we're saying we need curbside delivery of alcohol, we need home delivery of alcohol, and we need Sunday sales of alcohol. So we don't we have a culture that seems to be losing its way. It seems to me that respecting religious tradition. And I and and I'm talking about respecting, really, respecting God's Word as it relates to the importance of the Sabbath, something that we used to do. We used to say to ourselves, you know, in a culture where we need more religious influence, we need to respect some of the institutions of the church. We need to, or the, the uh, focus of the church. We need to be able to say that, you know, there's a day when we don't have to sell alcohol, because we're going to acknowledge that the influence of the church in our society is a good thing, and we need more, not less of it. And I I know people are saying, well, you can still um, encourage the church and still have alcohol sales on Sunday. We have separation of church and state. Yes, we do, but separation of church and state was always designed with making sure that the church doesn't get abused by the state. It was never intended... To keep the influence of the church out of the state, and this is one place where I think we really need it. I just don't, I just don't get it. I if we, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying prohibition is the thing that we need to go back to. I'm just saying that until in South Carolina we get a better handle on the consumption of alcohol, and by the way, I don't drink alcohol at all, um, and I, but I understand that there are people that do. And, and we have a problem with a lot of people that do because they have a problem with drinking too much alcohol, and yet we're going to make it more available. We're going to expend, expand opportunities for people to abuse alcohol, and that leads to the other things that I've talked about, DUIs, uh, domestic abuse, alcoholism, uh, the breakup of families, the you, you, people that become alcoholics often spend so much money on keeping their habit going that they deprive their family of things that they need. I mean, this was true when we had video poker. I mean, people were spending their paychecks on one arm slot machines, uh, the one arm bandits, before they ever got home. And it was a devastating effect to the family. A lot of people poo-pooed that. They said, well, you don't have any evidence that that's going on. Look, I was pastor of a fairly large church in the upstate. uh, It was um, Pleasant Grove Baptist Church down in Fountain Inn, And uh, I'm telling you, I I talked to people, to families, who were being very adversely affected by video poker and what it was taking out of the family's income to be able to survive. And we see the same thing with alcohol, and we will see the same thing if medical marijuana passes and that that's another thing that's going to come up this week likely is the senate is going to set medical marijuana for special order now for those of you who don't follow all the political machinations of uh, machinations of the senate uh, a bill pretty much in the senate has to be has to get a special order slot you have 3 of them and the caucus the republican majority decides which one of the of the bills or you can have a vote from the floor to fill one of the three slots of bills that get moved to the top of the stack. I mean, you've got so many bills that have to be considered or could be considered during the legislative session that there's no way that you're going to get to um, most of the bills unless they get a special order slot. So there was an attempt to put medical marijuana marijuana in a special order slot. Last week it failed, Um, and they're going to try it again this week after I'm sure there will be some arm twisting in the caucus. Uh, because there's so much money involved in this. I mean, there are um, a lot of activists that are pouring a lot of money, lobbyists that are pouring in, in industry. The, the marijuana, I'm going to call it the marijuana industry. People who want to see marijuana legalized in South Carolina are spending a lot of money for that because it's a big money crop. I mean, it, if if once we get... To medical marijuana, that's just let me get the door open. Let's get used to the idea that we're going to dispense, sell marijuana. We're going to start with the most vulnerable people that um, have a medical reason to get marijuana. Even though THC and the other elements in marijuana that are can be used for a legitimate medicinal medicinal purposes are available through the prescription process as a prescription drug, but course, what you take as a pill is not going to get you high when it comes to marijuana. So people want to be able to smoke it and or to be able to get it into their system. And that's exactly what medical marijuana will be. and with the distribution centers that are listed, the amount of growing centers that are included in the bill, and I've gone through I may talk about the numbers again later this week. I'm not going into the specifics right now because I don't have them in front of me. but I'm telling you, it is the building of an infrastructure that will open the door for recreational. Let's let's we're we we're people of common sense, and we know that medical marijuana is not going to bring revenue into the state. It's going to cost the state money to provide it. DHEC is going to this thing is going to land in DHEC's lap, and it it will be it will be expensive. But when you get recreational marijuana, then you have the real possibility. Of marijuana um, being a a cash crop, something that will obviously the state's going to tax it; uh, they're going to make money off of it. And and I know I'm hearing all these senators that are conservative senators. I mean, I'm I'm not calling their credentials into question. I mean, I don't I don't throw people under the bus if if I disagree with them over an issue, if they're voting in a very conservative way and trying to uphold the Republican platform and other areas, then I I try to stay, let my focus be on the issue. But I'm telling you, there are plenty of conservative senators over in the Senate that are in favor of medical marijuana. And they will tell you, I will never vote for recreational marijuana. Well, not today, probably not next session, but mark it down where medical marijuana Begins, recreational marijuana follows. We will have it in South Carolina. And a lot of people uh, want that. But again, I mean, if you look at Colorado, if you look at other states, California, that has legalized marijuana, a lot of people in California wish that they could do something to rescind it or try to get it off the books because of the multitude of problems. I mean, the number of people, particularly young people, that are showing up in emergency rooms in Colorado, uh, the number of uh, people who are driving under the influence. I mean, why do we want to expand a drug of any kind, whether it be alcohol or marijuana or whatever it is, that puts us in a mind-altered state and then we go out and make decisions or we go out and try to go to work. Now, most places of work are not going to allow you to come to work under the influence of alcohol or marijuana. I get that. But it's going to be a little bit dicey for employers to figure out, okay, can I send somebody home if they show up and they're high and they've got a marijuana, a medical marijuana card? I mean, I, I, I know they're supposed to be able to do that, but it, it's not – I mean, you, you begin to blur the lines because once the state says that something is legal or should be um, – uh, you, you should have access to, it becomes a problem for businesses and other entities to regulate that. I mean, it just – it gets complicated. I, I just don't understand why we have to do it. I mean, if we didn't have medication – that would replicate the effects of smoking marijuana, that is, without getting high, but would bring the medical benefit to people outside of having to ingest it in a way that, that makes you, uh, that alters the mind. I mean, okay, I, do I have compassion on people who need it for one reason or another, that chemical? Yeah, but I don't understand why. Well, I do understand. I mean, people want, it's a good feeling. Look, I, 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 I smoked marijuana in my life, I mean, when I was in college, and it, you know, I think I've told my story before. I quit even before I became a believer because I was concerned about the fact of how much I liked it. I could see the psychological addiction coming, and I decided, you know, I didn't want to spend my life high, and so I, I, I gave it up and it's a very it's very addictive and we haven't even talked about the carcinogens um, you know there there are plenty of studies that are showing that there are carcinogens in marijuana smoke just like there is in cigarette smoke and it took us how long 40 50 years to get to the point where we realized that people were smoking their way into an early grave with cigarettes and now we're going to okay fine uh, medical marijuana uh, we're gonna put we're gonna make it so that these carcinogens can go into your lungs and we're not going to know for another 30 years the effect until we wake up one day and realize that we that, that the marijuana industry, so to speak, did the same thing that the tobacco industry did, which was conceal some of the effects that are most devastating medically until we could get everybody, addicted or get everybody using it or get everybody used to it. And then we have to live with it. And the consequences are often, you know, we see these terrible commercials on television of people who smoked and they're trying to get people to not smoke, but they're, nobody's wanting to outlaw cigarettes. Um, they they just want to remind everybody that they're killing you. And I just don't understand why we want to legalize something. That Why do we want to do the opposite? We want to you know, we, we, probably people would say that cigarette smoking is something that is such a has such a bad effect that it would be good if we could get rid of it. But we're never going to be able to get rid of it, I mean, in terms of making it illegal. So we're going to be stuck with the same thing if we go down this road of starting with medical marijuana that increases to recreational marijuana. Then we're going to have something else we can't get rid of that basically is... Having a very detrimental effect on society, and it and it won't just be health; it'll be mental health when it comes to marijuana, because there are plenty of studies that show, particularly in young young people, as they smoke marijuana, because of its potency, which is up to about twenty times more potent than what I would have smoked when I was back in college. Um, that 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 the potency is is causing psychotic episodes and. Uh, mental issues, particularly with people 21 and younger, and I think uh, I believe the age was actually 25 and younger. So anyway, um, all of that's going to be going on in Colombia this week. That debate's going to ramp back up. And look, I have no illusions of there are very few people that are standing there with their hands up saying "Don't do this." Okay, most people, in fact, are uh, very much in favor of medical marijuana. I think, um, I mean, it, it, we may be able to stop it from passing in the Senate. Um, hopefully, there's a chance that the House won't take it up this session because it is an election year. I mean, these guys are headed toward a primary, and a lot of them have primary opposition. And um, I, I don't know that they want to be known for what what their legacy is. Is okay, we, we opened up the state to legalize medical marijuana, which is— going to be a red carpet toward recreational marijuana. Um, I don't know that they want to do that, particularly when their name's on the ballot, but we'll see. Um, That's going to be an interesting thing to follow. All right. Um, I want to go back and talk a little bit more about the immigration bill. I don't want to bore you. I mean, it's, you know, yesterday I went through it pretty thoroughly, but I want to go through, I've got some information here from Andrew McCarthy that I, as you know, I'm I'm a big fan of his. Uh, he writes over at National Review, and he's got his own podcast, and um, he writes for other uh, news outlets as well. He's a great commentator. He's very thorough. So we're going to go through some of that. But just as a review, um, $118 billion total, $60 billion in approximately, and these are rounded off numbers, by the way. Um, um, we, I was a little bit more specific yesterday, but for the sake of talking about it again today, 118 billion total, 60 billion in aid to Ukraine, 14 billion for Israel, 20 billion to the border. And by the way, a lot of people are making that comparison. They're upset about the fact that we're going to spend 60 billion to help in Ukraine, where we're only going to spend 20 billion. To, to try to make it possible for our country to be security. You could call it $60 billion for Ukrainian security versus $20 billion for U.S. security when it comes to our southern border. Um, and, and people are framing it that way. Now, I don't think that's completely fair, but I, I do see their point, is that if we're going to spend all this money... You know, this whole thing started. This conversation started because Republican senators, uh, the president won all this money. I think it was... I've. Uh, 90 or 100 billion, right around 100 billion for Ukraine, for Israel, and for Taiwan. And Republicans said, well, you're not getting anything unless you address the border. We want a bill to address not only aid going overseas, but we want to spend money to secure our own border. And so Republicans and Democrats got together, Langford, uh, Senator Langford, and Kirst- Kirsten Sinema and some others that got together and tried to work out a compromise bill. And now, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of funny, Republicans are saying, well, uh, some Republicans are saying, look, we, we never wanted any money for Ukraine to start with. Yeah, well, th- there was this discussion that started the whole border discussion about getting money for the border. If we're going to give money to Ukraine, it's got to be tied to border security, and now some are saying, "Well, we do, we don't want this bill because it includes money for Ukraine." When it started out being, "What's well, going to be money for Ukraine?" But we've got to do something on the border. So it just kind of shows you how quickly things can switch around in Washington or in Colombia or anywhere that we're involved in political debate. So 20 billion for the border, 10 billion for humanitarian aid to Gaza, um, and some of that humanitarian aid would go to Ukraine. About 2 billion uh, for aid to Taiwan. And other Indo-Pacific nations to try to help them get ready for the Chinese invasion that's coming at some point. Um, and the 20 billion for border security, as much as I can determine. Again, just rounded off numbers here. Eight billion for um, immigration customs enforcement. Uh, billions more to hire border patrol agents. By the way, the border patrol union. I saw this story. They came out and and I think they're kind of. Uh, tentatively, or maybe reluctantly would be a better word. They're reluctantly supporting this bill because they say even though it's got problems, it's better than what they're dealing with now and they need help. So uh, that's from the Border Patrol Union. Uh, It would build more detention facilities, which I don't know why we need. I think we have 37 detention facilities right now. We're not using them. I mean, the Biden administration is not I don't think they're, you know, what they're doing is paroling or they, they are, um, you know, allowing um, those who are asylum seekers to be detained uh, briefly and then released into the country with a court date. And that's what's causing all the problems across the country because we've got uh, illegal immigrants coming across the border. They're, they're deemed to be legal Um, in the government's eyes, if they get an asylum, if they're requesting asylum, then it has to be determined if asylum is legitimate. And while that determination is being made, they're released into the interior of the country with a court date of who knows. Um, And so this whole idea that we need to... I mean, if we're going to detain people instead of parole or release them, in, in some way into the interior of the country, yeah, we're going to need more detention facilities. And we need more asylum officers to make determinations more quickly, um, But which is part of the bill. But if we're not going to enforce any of this, then, I mean, building the facilities is not going to matter. Um, investing in more technology to detect the smuggling of fentanyl, there's money for that, and provide several billion dollars to NGOs and, and nonprofits in border communities that have been accused of helping immigrants that are coming in illegally um, and, and working with them in ways that get them trying to help them navigate any of the immigration laws that may be enforced at all. Now, I, I don't have firsthand knowledge of all this. I mean, I, what I, I hear two stories. I hear that the NGO, NGOs and the nonprofits are actually providing humanitarian aid and taking care of, of helping these immigrants to navigate the law because they come here and they don't know the law and they need um, advice about how to, if, they're, if they have a legitimate asylum concern, how that needs to be heard. And so there are those who say that the NGOs and nonprofits are doing a good thing, and there are those who say no, they're trying to help the illegal's simply circumvent the law and get past border patrol and ice and and get them into the country and, and the interior of the country which is then once they get in they're going to stay. So I you know I can't I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I know for sure which way that goes. What I imagine is it it's like most things. You have some that are doing real humanitarian work which as Christians we should be all for Helping take care of people's physical needs when they when they get here until their case is adjudicated. I mean, I, we're we're st- again we're still talking about people created in the image of God. We shouldn't cre- look at people and treat them like they're political fodder, political cannon fodder. I mean, they they shouldn't. We shouldn't be yelling at each other over the lives of people if, if we need to be helping to take care of those people while the political determinations get made about what's gonna happen about their future. And to the extent that the NGOs and nonprofits are doing that, that's a good thing. To the extent that they're abusing that, what, what they're supposed to be doing and actually assisting in getting illegals into the country, uh, they're adding to the problem. All right, uh, Andrew McCarthy, he's, as I said, he's one of my favorites, and he's written about this pretty extensively today at National Review. And so I just want to give you a little bit of his review because he's, he's looking at the actual policies here, not just the money being spent, but what the policies would bring. And uh, it's, it's pretty negative, and by the way, uh, overall, he says this bill needs to be rejected on its merits. that it doesn't need, be, need to be rejected for uh, political sake. I mean, we've got a crisis at the border. and the crisis needs to be solved. It doesn't need to be put on hold until the next election because it helps one candidate or hurts another candidate. And by the way, I'm, I, I totally support that. I this idea that if, if something is really hurting the American people and is detrimental to our country, then we need to deal with it and let the politics work its way out. Um, we, you know, whoever gets credit. Uh, It it, it shouldn't be that big of a concern if we're really concerned about America as a country's well-being and the people's well-being. And for that matter, the illegal immigrants' well-being that are getting bussed all over the country and ending up on the street in D.C. and in Chicago. um, And I mean, this thing is incredibly complicated. It doesn't have to be, but it is. And, and so we, we, the last thing that needs to be is politicized, but it's the number one thing on people's minds. And so the number one social issue by far is immigration. And so we just need to pretty much admit the fact that that's going to cause it to be politicized. But if it is the crisis that we think it is, and I'm, I'm 100% in that camp, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a terrible crisis that needs to be fixed then politics should not be the main consideration. It should be, if we have the ability to fix this problem, let's fix it outside of whoever it helps or hurts when it comes to politics because that, that's not taking the American people's interest to heart. All right, um, here's Andrew McCarthy. If the senator's formula were enforced, and they've, they've got a formula that says that when we get to an average of 5,000 illegal alien encounters per day – And and by the way, when we talk about encounter, that's a euphemism uh, for the Department of Homeland Security for apprehension at ports of entry and elsewhere. It doesn't say apprehension or arrest because that would imply detention, which is not happening in most cases. So just so we understand the terms, encounter, what the encounter means. So the border would have to be closed under the formula If there were 8,500 encounters in a single day, McCarthy writes, Ergo, as others have observed, because the Biden non-enforcement policies routinely result in over 5,000 illegal entries per day, with many days featuring over 8,500, in fact, if we go back to December, 371,000 illegals entered in just 31 days, we're already at the threshold which the senator's formula would direct that the administration close the border. Thereafter, the border would not be reopened until the number of illegal aliens attempting to enter decreased to 75% of the total, which is set as the benchmark, 5,000, I think, in a week, 8,500 in a day. So after that statement, then the proposal sets forth these caveats that, The implication of which is that the senators are content with the entry of something close to 5,000 per day. And that's, by the way, that's 1.825 million per year. That's more than the population of Phoenix, more than the population of all but four American cities, more than 12 American states, and the District of Columbia. And on top of the more than 6 million who have already entered entered the country some say it's eight million some say it's 10 million when you start counting the getaways i have no doubt that it's the higher number but so we're already pushing state budgets to the breaking point and we're going to have another 1.8 not legal immigrants coming into the country but illegal immigrants coming in under this policy that's supposed to close the border and what world does that make sense The senators propose that the border could be closed at the discretion of the administration. That would be the Homeland Security Secretary, as directed by the president, if encounters are 4,000 per day. That is, if the illegal entries are merely happening at a rate of 1.5 million per year, the secretary need take no action. Moreover, if the border is closed under the mandatory 5,000 per day formula, but then the average number of illegal aliens seeking entry dips to only 3,725 per day, now we're down to 1.4 million a year, then the border closure authority is withdrawn. Think about that. Right now, under U.S. immigration law, according to Andrew McCarthy, Section 1182F, and recent Supreme Court decisions, President Biden has the authority to close the border. Now, there's a big debate about that, whether he does or doesn't. I'm telling you what Andrew McCarthy thinks, and he's talked about this uh, pretty extensively. If the Senate proposal were signed into law, it could be argued, and progressive judges appointed by Biden would surely rule this way, that this new law supersedes the old and that the president now lacks authority to shut the border unless illegal entries are averaging over 5000 per day so why would it why would anybody agree to that that we have to we have to tolerate a certain amount of illegal immigration rather than just closing the border we have to have a, I, I don't understand I, well, I do understand in the negotiations between Republicans and Democrats, this is, a, this is a gimme. And see, even progressives, they're shouting about this bill. Conservatives don't like it. Progressives don't like it for different reasons. Progressives don't like it because they don't want the border to be shut down under any circumstances. They're open border proponents. Conservatives don't like it because they want the border under control and averaging over 5000 per day or 4,000, or 8,500 a week is not a border under under control. It's still allowing, at that standard, about a million and a half, a million three, a million four, a million five people to enter illegally every year. Moreover, the Senate proposal would restrict the president's ability to close the border, even if the magic 5,000 per day average is surpassed. And I don't hear a lot of people talking about this, but according to Andrew McCarthy, in the first year of the proposal, the shutdown authority would be available for only 270 days. That's nine months, not 12. In the second year, it drops to 225 or about seven months. And in the third year, 180 days. That's six months. And so what happens outside that timeline? Do you think that people that are coming in caravans and the, the people that are directing them to come here because of our policies won't know the timeline, that they, they will know when these um, restrictions can be put in place and when they're not. According to McCarthy, existing law mandates that illegal aliens entering the United States be detained. Rationally, that's as it should be since the entry is illegal and the aliens have no right to be at liberty in the country. Yet the senator's proposal would undermine that existing law by codifying the release of vast categories of illegal aliens, family units, and unaccompanied minors, which is what's driving so much of the immigration now. Uh, Biden has pretty much let it be known that family units, once they get in, have a good chance of staying. So why would we agree to a proposal that would carve into law huge, huge exceptions to the statutory presumption that illegal aliens are supposed to be detained upon being encountered? Are the senators saying that because Biden is breaking the law, we should change the law to accommodate that? That, that, that doesn't make any sense. And look, I'm, as a believer, families need to, be, need to stay together together. Families and children. We should not have a policy that breaks up families at the border. Uh, and But how do you address that? I don't think this is the way to address it, to just allow the family units in. Because when you make an exception like that, and you say, okay, single, um, unaccompanied children and, and single people, uh, well, un- unaccompanied children, uh, excuse me, unaccompanied children would be allowed in under the bill. But single Military age men. Let's put them in that country. They're going to be detained, and they're going to be. Their case is going to be determined. So let. I mean, what what are you going to do? What what are the uh, immigrants going to do in order to assure that they're going to be able to get in? They're going to come and present as family units, and they're going to have to demonstrate that they're a family unit to be let into the country. So alternatives to detention let, let me talk about that for a little bit because this is I mean I mean you, you you're when when you have a program that says well a law rather that says that people who are entering the country illegally should be detained but then you have alternative to detention which is something that grew up actually during Bush 43 because it, it became obvious that the resources, uh, the, well, the excuse or the, what was being said by immigration authorities is that Congress is not allocating enough money to make it possible to detain all the people that are approaching the border illegally, so we need alternatives to detention, which are really not legal at all. It's something that was fabricated by executive officials as an excuse not to comply with the mandatory detention law, and we've been winking at it for years. And that's part of the reason that we have the crisis that we have now. So now the Senate negotiators propose normalizing alternatives to detention by prescribing it to rationalize releasing releasing family units. The senators tell us that this would be done only in conjunction with a commitment to speed up removal and asylum proceedings, and Biden's parole scam would largely be shut down, which would be a good thing. I mean, that's one good thing about the bill is that it, it, it addresses... The parole scam, and it also allows for quicker decisions to be made on asylum. But again, looking at the big picture, McCarthy writes, we have to ask how is that really an improvement? It would undermine the detention mandate, which would be bad enough in principle, but is indefensible when it's crystal clear that detention is more conducive to national security, more economical, by the way, than release, and ultimately more humane because it reduces the aliens' incentives to bear the perilous risk of death, rape, trafficking, and other horrors abundant to the tri- on, in the trip to our border. And by the way, the parole scam is already illegal. While it's good that the senators would end the app scheme designed to camouflage illegal entries, and we've talked about that on the program before, it's an app that um, illegal immigrants have on their phone that lets them navigate uh, into the country and essentially get paroled, But it would leave in place Biden's paroling of hundreds of thousands of Cuban, Haitian, Nicaraguan, and uh, Venezuelan aliens, despite the obvious national security issues and the fact that the parole initiative has not had the promised effect of stopping massive illegal entries by nationals of these countries. They're they're still coming. I mean, we had a momentary lull that the press jumped on because they, they wanted to prop up the president. And then we immediately went back to just massive crossings, which is where we are now. So if, if Congress can address this by tightening up the removal process, toughening asam- asylum standards, and increasing detention resources, why not just do that? After all, that's Congress's duty to do that, according to McCarthy. Why, when we already have a crisis, should we have to accept millions more illegal alien entries as the price for having Congress doing what it's obligated to do anyway, and as the price for having the president do what he could do now with no additional legal authority. Now, I think that's a legitimate question. That's how, that's, that's the end of Andrew McCarthy's, the stuff that I use from him. Now, let's turn to Daily Wire News. Numerous Republican senators, when we think about the future of this bill, have already come out and vo- voiced strong opposition, um, and that has led McConnell to urge remaining Republican senators to block the bill. So that that's what McConnell is saying now. He recommended to GOP senators behind closed doors that they block the border bill on Wednesday per multiple sources because it's clear that most Republicans are preparing to vote no either because they oppose the bill or want more time. Uh And and so McConnell explicitly recommended a no vote on cloture on the motion to proceed, according to several attendees in the meeting. McConnell said the problem isn't what Langford negotiated. It's that the political mood in the country has changed. Well, I talked about this yesterday in an interview that I did with World News. The political attitude in the country is total frustration because we are allowing massive illegal immigration into the country – and we aren't doing anything about it when we have the authority to fix it. Top House Republicans signaled shortly after the bill was unveiled that it would be dead on arrival if it made it to the lower chamber. House Speaker Mike Johnson, Majority Leader Steve Scalise, Majority Whip Tom Emmer, and Chairwoman Elisa Stefanik Kill the bill in a joint statement, essentially. They put out a statement that said, quote, House Republicans oppose the Senate immigration bill because it fails in every policy area needed to secure our border and would actually incentivize more illegal immigration. Now, I think that's an exaggeration. I'll just, I, I think that um, obviously they've decided they don't want the bill to pass, so they're going to come at it with a hammer, which is what happens in politics. But I, I do think there's some areas of the bill that are good but not enough to warrant, I think, its passage at this time. They went on to say, Among its many flaws, the bill expands work authorizations for illegal aliens while failing to include critical asylum reforms. Even worse, its language allowing illegals to be released from physical custody would effectively endorse the Biden catch-and-release policy. That's according to the House leadership. So whether you agree, disagree, think that's right, wrong, whatever – Um, if that's the attitude coming from the House leadership, uh, even if this thing gets through the Senate, which it doesn't look like it's going to. But if it does, um, it's very likely, as uh, Speaker Johnson has said, going to be dead on arrival in the House. All right, a couple of other things that we want to get to quickly um, here today. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about this environmentalist stuff that's going on. Uh, A good piece today at National Review by Noah Rothman. I I really like his writing. And he's he's putting an emphasis on the fact. He makes this statement. He says, the environmentalist fanatic's answer to every environmental challenge appears to be ensuring that more people have access to less. Less red meat, less on-demand energy, fewer reliable appliances. We know all about the war on gas ovens. Um, or gas stoves, we, we know about, um, I, I mean, the push for electric vehicles that just won't work in very cl- cold climates, and on and on we could go. Well, now you can put tires on the list to what radical environmentalists would like to limit your choices for, that you can't simply have the kind of tires maybe that you feel like you need because of the climate where you live. A new bill in Washington state would give regulators the ability to ban tires that create a drag on fuel efficiency. Now that's according to the Wall Street Journal in an editorial that was published on Sunday. Washington lawmakers have set their sights on tires with treads that produce excessive rolling resistance, is what it's called, which is to say vehicles that trade maximum fuel efficiency for increased driver control over the vehicle in adverse weather conditions. In other words, we'd rather have more accidents, we'd rather have more, the uh, in Washington state, we'd rather have more people in danger of having an accident during severe weather than we would, uh, we'd rather have that than to have some slight effect on climate change. And let's just be honest here. Changing tires, that's not going to, in one state, that's not going to affect anything as it comes. That has to do with climate change. All it's going to do is put people in danger. If it went into effect, the law would make driving a more dangerous activity in exchange for a dubious and theoretical reduction in overall carbon emissions. Which, the only thing that it would, the only way that you could even make that argument is that these tires that would be blocked require more or rather less fuel efficiency. But at the time that the drivers have the tires on their vehicles, it helps protect their lives and the lives of others because they're getting into fewer accidents. And this pretty much, as Rothman says, underscores how progressives are using climate as an excuse to intervene in nearly every corner of the U.S. economy. The Wall Street Journal came to that same conclusion. But they didn't have to stop at tires. Next on the ban list is balloons. Environmentalists around the country are cajoling city councils into banning the release, sale, and public use of just party balloons. Now it started out with they didn't want a massive balloon release because those balloons end up getting, um, I think they, you know, eventually they come down, they get uh, eaten by are picked up by birds, other animals that can hurt them. I mean, that was the argument, okay? But now that's morphed into, well, we, not only do we not want a mass release of balloons during an event, we just don't want any available. We, we want to take away party balloons. And this is according to the Washington Examiner's uh, Tiana Lowe, She writes that how activists across the country are successfully lobbying states to make the release of lighter-than-air balloons a misdemeanor criminal offense. But beyond that, some American municipalities have gone so far as to propose a wholesale ban on the sale of balloons. And I mean, there's there's nothing that these environmentalists won't go after to simply make a point because there's nothing about the balloons that's going to affect climate. Another thing, America's most environmentally conscious communities are toying with putting downward pressure on tourism, believe it or not. In response to activist demands that Hawaii do more to combat ecological damage done by visitors to the state every year, Governor Josh Green has proposed a small green fee that would serve as a tax on tourism. According to Scoring, the proposal would raise only about $68 million a year from tourists, fees that might go in a small way toward floating bonds designed to finance climate-related mitigation projects. But as the adage goes, when you tax something, you get less of it. For a state that is economically dependent on tourists, making the trek that much more of a financial hardship is a self-defeating proposition. I, I, I can't, I can't even fathom that a governor whose responsibility for the is to, is to protect the welfare of the state would, in the state of Hawaii, decide that it would be a good idea to tax tourism in order to fight climate change. I mean, that's that, that really does border on the insane, because Hawaii depends on the tourist trade. That's their major industry. But the ban list for environmentalists is always expanding, um, and and of course, it, it it's none of the things that they're talking about that we have to give up in order to fight climate change is going to make a tenth of a degree difference in global warming or in the change in or or overall change in the climate. But it's becoming a power play. I mean, it's pretty much and has been for many people. It's just the ability that people have to have control over other people, upending the economy, and changing the way America works. I mean, this is, in, and that's, may I, say, may I just say, that would be bad. All right, uh, quickly, I want to get to this story. We've got a, a major medical journal that's retracted studies of, of, uh, of, uh, that are critical of the abortion pill or of chemical abortions, and they're doing this just a few weeks out from when the Supreme Court is going to take this up. Three studies, including two, this is according to Daily Wire today, by the way, and it's by, um, let's see, Leif LeMachieu. Three studies, including two, on the potential harms of the abortion pill just were retracted on Monday by Sage Publishing, which is an independent academic publishing company, the retraction notice states that an independent review of the studies was conducted due to a single reader's complaint, that the studies included misleading data, uh, data and that the authors were affiliated with a pro-life organization. <gasps> well, you can't have people that have anything to do with a pro-life organization conducting scientific study. I mean, there should be uh, some way that people who are pro-life glow in the dark or have some kind of screening so that if a scientist walks in a building, an alarm goes off if it turns out that scientist happens to be pro-life. The authors of the study say the retractions are a politically motivated effort to discredit research that was cited in U.S. District Judge Matthew casemarks um, April 2023 decision to suspend approval of Mifepristone a drug used roughly in roughly half of all abortions in the United States. Yeah, it just uh, d- imagine that that these studies that are now being withdrawn just happen to be the studies that were cited by the judge that was critical of Mifepristone because the information in these studies led the judge to believe that there's a problem. The authors of the studies say the retractions are politically motivated. duh an effort to discredit research that was cited by the judge. Dr. James Studenicki, Wow, a listed author on all three studies in question, told the Daily Wire that the retractions were completely unjustified and that they were meant to discredit scientific research that challenged the pro-abortion bias ingrained in academia. Well, of course. I mean, and how many stories have I talked about over the years of how scientific studies are dumped scientific scientific studies that point to the point to the danger of transgender surgery on minors. I mean, scientific studies that talk about the danger of puberty blockers and the fact that we don't know for sure the long-term effects. I mean, all of these, if they're if they don't forget uh, line up with the progressive template, are in danger of just being discredited and discarded. One of the now retracted studies published November 8th, uh, excuse me, 9th, 2021, found that the rate of emergency room visits following chemical abortions had spiked 500% from 2002 to 2015, according to Medicaid claims data. Another one of the studies, published May 20, 2022, analyzed the likelihood of recurring emergency room visits for women who did not disclose to doctors that they had a chemical abortion. Those two studies were cited by the judge's decision to suspend FDA approval of mifepristone. The testimony of Dr. Ingrid Scope, who was an author on all three of the articles, was cited multiple times in the August decision from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals where the court said that chemical abortion drug mifepristone should not be distributed through the mail or prescribed via telemedicine. So, sure. I mean, if, if you've got a, a worrisome study, if you've got... If the science, which progressives are always saying, follow the science, unless the science points you away from progressive ideologues if it does then you've got to get rid of the science and apparently they have the ability to do that after months of back and forth with the journal on November 13th sage told the researchers they would be retracting the three studies the next day Stadnicki had was kicked off the editorial board of the health services research and managerial um, epidemiology journal months before the retractions actually took place quote in light of the decision to retract three research articles where you are an author i believe your term as an editorial board member must now come to an end uh, so after we get rid of the studies let's get rid of the people that authored the studies because we can't we can't have this we can't have people going against progressive idealism idealism um uh, th- this is I mean th- this ought to disturb you. I mean I I don't like to just do stories for their shock value, but when when you're talking about scientific studies that were vetted, peer-reviewed and have and the only reason is somebody one person comes and complains and then they reject the studies and they go after the authors because those studies are being used in order to, push back against mifepristone. And, and I'm telling you, this is an intimidation ploy, pure and simple. It's basically saying to scientists, you better come up with the right approved opinion. You better make sure your research and your data, your data line up with the progressive mindset, or we're going to come after you. We're going to get your studies discredited, and then ultimately, we'll get you discredited for daring to write something that we disagree with. Um, I, I, we, the scientific community can survive something like that. I mean, it, it, it really can't. All right. Um, got one more thing that I wanted to get to here. Let's see. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we talk about president Biden and the issues that he has with what we believe is challenges to his health and challenges to his mental state, and we have President Biden, when he's delivering remarks in Las Vegas on Sunday, ahead of the Nevada primary, he harkened back to a G7 meeting in the United Kingdom and a gathering of NATO leaders that took place in June of 2021, in which a conversation about the U.S. Capitol breach on January 6th apparently came up. Now I'm going I'm going I want to let you hear what Biden said, and then we'll talk about why this is another indication that mentally the president is deteriorating. People have pled guilty, you know. Right, right, right after I was elected, I went to a, what they call a G7 meeting, all the NATO leaders. I was in, I was in the south of England, and I sat down and I said, "America's back," and on Iran from Germany, I mean, from France looked at me and said, uh, "said, you know, why, why, how long are you back for? Okay, here's the problem. Uh, the issue with this story is that Francois Mitterrand was president of France from 1981 to 1995, and he's been dead since 1996. That's 25 years ago. Um, and, and of course he would that that's prior to the G seven meeting in twenty twenty-one. At that time, Emmanuel Macron was president of France. So we have the president of the United States making these comments in Nevada. And he didn't he didn't catch himself, he didn't correct himself, he just simply referred to a president of France that was out of office in ninety-five, had passed away in ninety-six. And he referred to him as someone that he talked to in 2021. And he referred to him first as being um, connected with Germany. And then he came back and correctly said that he was, it was France. But he never came back to admit that the only way he could have had a conversation with him is if he had a seance. Because he had been gone for a number of years, had passed away a number of years ago. And this is, of course, not the first time that Biden has suggested that he interacted with Mitterrand. At the same meeting, Biden told a similar version of the story, including the same Francois Mitterrand blunder in 2022. In both cases, White House transcripts of Biden's remarks showed Mitterrand's name crossed out and replaced with Macron. So this, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't know how, how serious this problem has to get, but... Um, before the American people, and I know a lot of the American people are reacting to it already. But as we go into this election, which is going to be between President Trump and between uh, President Biden, I mean, we're going to have a rematch of 2020. Then as more more, and more as the president goes out, I mean, I don't know what the, what the Biden campaign is going to do. They can send him back to the basement the way they did in 2020, but they don't have COVID to blame. They're going to have to admit that the reason that he's not going to debate and the reason that he's not going to make a lot of public speeches or hold a lot of public rallies is because of things like this. Um, It reveals his weaknesses, and some of them are glaring. Well, that's all the time that we've got today, so we will wrap it up, and we'll be back in the morning at 7.30. I hope you'll be here at the same time to enjoy the program. And if you like the show, help me out. Share it on Facebook. Uh, Tell your friends. They can watch it live on YouTube and Facebook at 730 in the morning. And of course, the podcast, it's really easy to follow. All you have to do is follow me. It's free. Um, You can go. You can find it at Spotify. You'll find it at Apple Podcast. And if you would, if you enjoy it, if you listen to it and follow it, please leave me a good review. It'll help me support and continue to grow the audience. God bless you. Have a great day.